Transitions are tough, aren't they? None of us likes transition. There are some that like transition even less than others. My wife is one of them. She doesn't like change. Um, in fact, when we, how many of you like change? I'm going to raise my hand because I do. I like change. Change is exciting. I like to see what God is going to do around the next corner. In fact, I like change so much that I don't want to go to the same restaurant two times in a row. But see, not my wife. She wants to go to the same restaurant every time we go out, and she wants to get the same thing every time we go to the same restaurant. Because why do I need to change anything that I like? I want to sample and try something new. If it were up to me, I would change the furniture in our house every week. If it were up to me. But it's not up to me. (laughs) I leave it up to her. Transition is difficult. There are three stages to transition, though. You know what the first stage is? You guys have experienced it. Anybody tell me what the first stage of transition is? Loss. The first stage of transition is loss. Cody and I were driving the van home yesterday, and and I I didn't get the connection, but I I got into Cody's head a little bit, and I understood. Cody said, I I woke up this morning, and he said, it was kind of like a Doctor Who episode. And I, what? Help me understand. He said, well, every once in a while, Doctor Who, how many of you ever watched Doctor Who? Who? Small group. Uh, The main character, Doctor Who, changes. And he regenerates into another character. And Cody says, there's this sense of loss because I really got familiar with that guy, with that character, with that actor, and with what he brought to the, to the show. But now I'm really excited because there's this new regeneration of Doctor Who, and he's different, and he has so many other things that he's bringing to the show that I'm really excited about what the show holds next. The reality is, is we can't stay in the loss category for a very long time, can we? We can't. The the middle stage of transition is called neutral. What's going on? What what are we going to become? And that's the third stage, it's new beginnings. There's loss, there's neutral, and there's new beginnings. I've been, I really have, as I mentioned earlier, I've been excited to share this message with you for months. But, but I, I feel like if I had shared it three months, six months earlier, you really would have been in a place to, to receive it. Because some of you really are still, you, you still don't know yet, and that's okay. I, I really want to give you the freedom to still be in that place of neutral. But at some point, you've got to get out of neutral and move forward into new beginnings. Biggest Loser is one of my favorite TV shows. I love Biggest Loser because really, it's a story of redemption. And I wish that Biggest Loser were coupled with spiritual truth, but it's not. Some of the people, some of the the trainers there are Christians, but they don't share their faith. But it's amazing to me to watch the transitions of these people, and it's really more more than the weight loss. It's more than the dramatic weight loss of these folks. It's how their lives change. It's when you you see them through the 13-week show, how their lives change from being hopeless, a sense of hopelessness, a sense of, of, I'm never going to get out of this place, to realizing it was their choices that put them there. It was the choices that I dealt with in dealing with difficulties in my life. It was the choices that I dealt with in dealing with relationships. It was the choices that I dealt with in dealing with loss that caused me to develop habits that caused this weight gain and this sense of hopelessness. And they started making different choices. Men and women on any number of medications for diabetes, heart disease, high blood pressure, became free of pills. And, and, and thankfully, they had doctors that walked alongside them to make sure that they wouldn't, weren't putting their bodies into danger. But the reality is, is that weight loss or weight gain produces a lot of those things. Diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease. Biggest Loser, as I mentioned, is a show of redemption. It's a show of second chances. And believe it or not, as these people would change, and as they would lose hundreds of pounds sometimes, 
uh, as they would share their stories, it would bring me to tears. Because change is possible. Change is possible for all of us. Almost without fail, though, as the show progressed, you'd hear words like this coming from the contestants. How did I let myself get to that place? Or I couldn't move past my setbacks to realize that my choices in dealing with life's struggles were killing me. Life is full of setbacks, isn't it? Life is full of setbacks. How many of you have had a series of setbacks in your life? I have. I think if we're, if we're alive, if we, if we breathe, we all have setbacks, don't we? Whether it's financial problems, health issues, divorce, loss of loved ones, these and many more visit us all. With any setback, the challenge is how do you take a setback and make it a comeback? How do you take a setback and make it a comeback? Is it possible to take a setback and make a comeback? Comebacks are possible, and I think they happen all the time. A comeback will always begin with one simple thing. As Biggest Loser, these folks made a decision to change. They made a decision to stop doing what they were doing that caused them to become overweight, to cause them to move towards hopelessness. They changed and moved towards a different, a different end to their life. They made a change. And that's where comebacks begin. Unless you change what you presently are doing or not doing, things are going to remain the same. There will be no comeback. In fact, there will be continued spiral downward. If those folks on Biggest Loser weren't willing to make a change, they would have gotten bigger. They would have gotten more unhealthy. That's the reality. Unless we're willing to change, things won't get better. Baseball legend Josh Hamilton. How many have heard of Josh Hamilton? Josh Hamilton's a Christian. Uh, he was set back by years of injuries that caused him to miss 236 games in the first three years of his major league career. And because of the setbacks he was dealing with, physical setbacks, pain, he turned to substance abuse, became a drug addict. And in 2004, the Major League Baseball banned him, suspended him indefinitely from baseball. But because he made a comeback, he made some choices. He was reinstated to baseball, uh, became the MVP of the American League in 2010. And when you talk to Josh Hamilton, he would say that he attributes his comeback to his recommitment to faith. To make a change, to move from the path that he was going, and to refocus on the God who had called him. What about Abraham Lincoln? Many consider Abraham Lincoln the greatest president in American history. He led the country through one of its greatest moral and military crises. Lincoln grew up in meager circumstances. He failed in business twice. And he had what most would consider a nervous breakdown. He lost when he ran for Congress. He lost twice when he ran for Senate. And he lost as a vice presidential candidate. How many of you would quit, quit at the first loss? I would quit at the first loss. I'm like, gosh, I'm, not, I'm never going to amount to anything. He didn't quit. How many of you have heard the story of Thomas Edison? How many times did he fail in creating the light bulb? A thousand times. Abraham Lincoln made a comeback. He was elected to this, as the 16th president of the United States. He led the country through a time of reconciliation. He won re-election, and many say his leadership, his political skill, and outstanding oratory all contributed to his amazing comeback. Are setbacks only for human beings? Are there setbacks in institutions? The church experiences setback. The church experiences spiral downward. The church experiences moving from relevancy to irrelevancy because it's full of humans, because it's full of fallen, <laughs> redeemed human beings. If you have your Bibles open to Revelation 2, I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 7. There are seven letters that Jesus wrote to seven churches in the beginning of Revelation. Only two 
did Jesus have positive things to say for? The other five were at various levels of decline. The church at Ephesus was one of them. So follow along in your Bibles as I read. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. This was a church of people who toiled for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of the gospel. They weren't lazy. They weren't indifferent. They were busy. They were giving everything they had, unlike some people who attend church and all they're looking for is a box seat to be entertained or a banquet table to be fed spiritual food only to be satisfied but never do anything with it. There are a lot of onlookers and watchers who love to eat the fruit of the harvest but want no part of the planning and the cultivation. That is the church. In the church, Jesus said, there'd be wheat and tares. There'd be folks who are faithful and folks who aren't. That's a picture of the church. Not this group of Ephesians, though. They were always at it. They were teaching. They were loving. They were giving. They were sharing. They were proclaiming the gospel, ministering to one another, and for the sake of Christ. They were active. Not a church offering weekly solace for the hours of boredom that people experience. They weren't a church offering a couch to take a rest. They were a church that really understood the yoke under which they had been called to labor in plowing the field and sowing the seed of the good news of Christ. They knew life was in the service of love. Not only were they known for their deeds and their toil in those deeds, but their perseverance and patience. Jesus commended them for that, didn't he? This is not a grim resignation. This is not just giving up. This is courageous gallantry which accepts hardship, suffering, persecution, loss. This is invincible, the invincible attitude that is not beaten down, that is not cast out, endures. They were persistent. They were staying with it. Their deeds were honorable. God-glorifying deeds. They worked hard at it, and they stayed under the difficulties and persevered. Hard-working, relentless, indomitable spirits. Would you say that that was a wonderful church? I would say that was a wonderful church. I would say that was a church that I would want to be involved in. They weren't lazy. They weren't looking for instant gratification. That is a lot of the church today. The church has become a culture of me-centered folks. We, we, we don't come to church looking for what's in it for other people or even what's in it for God. Any number of churches that I have served, I have always heard people leave saying, I didn't get anything out of that message today. Or I didn't get anything out of that worship service today. And the reality is, is we're not here for ourselves ultimately. We're here for God. Our worship is for him. So if you're not getting anything out of it, it's probably not his problem. It's probably ours. And we need an attitude change, don't we, as a church? And I'm not talking small seat church in general. The church is like this all over the country. Those were the good words that Jesus had to say to this church. If you look at verse 4, let me read through verse 7. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this, that, yet this you have. You, have. you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, who I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. You know, for all intents and purposes, 
I would say that this is a great, great church. But verse 4, we move from commendation to condemnation. I have this against you, that you have left your first love. It's unmistakable, isn't it? What does Jesus mean by the phrase, you've left your first love? Commentators don't completely agree. They have different opinions on this. Some believe that it means that they had forsaken their love for Jesus. They had lost the original zeal and passion that they had for his glory. And the truth is, is that if you all look back at the time where you accepted Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you have to admit that there probably was an initial zeal that you probably don't have today, do you? It's easy to become comfortable. It's easy to to not put yourself out there. It's easy to, to not want to share the gospel and be rejected. And so you fall back into this place of comfort and ease. C.S. Lewis, I know it wasn't C.S. Lewis, Francis Schaeffer said that he believed what would kill the American church was personal peace and affluence. And we certainly have enough of the health and wealth gospel in our country. But personal peace and affluence affects our willingness to put it all on the line for Jesus, doesn't it? We don't want to be rejected. Who wants to be rejected? Who wants to have people not like you for the gospel? When someone has a conversion experience, they are often so full of love and thankfulness for Jesus that they tell everyone they know about it and want others to come to know him as well. Their love for Jesus overflows. Some commentators suggest that the Ephesians had taken their eyes off Jesus and their love for him had grown cold. And I believe that's true. They had taken their eyes off Christ. But I think there's more to it than that. Other commentators see a wider reference because love for God and love for others can't be separated. One commentator suggests the idea is that they no longer express their former zealous love for Jesus by witnessing to him in the world and witnessing for him in the world. I think this may be why Jesus chose to introduce himself as he does in verse 1. Do you see how he introduces himself? He says that he who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, by doing so, he intends to remind the church that their primary role in relation to him should be that of light, of witness to the outside world. That is our primary role. It is easy to become a holy huddle. It's easy to insulate ourselves from the world around us, isn't it? But that's not what God has called us to do. God has called us to gather Sundays to be equipped so that we can go out and be the people that he's called us to be Monday through Saturday. That's what the gathering of the church is for. It's not just to pump myself up so I can feel better about myself Monday through Saturday. It's so I can get God's perspective on what he's called me to do. Even Jesus needed to get away from the crowd, didn't he? Jesus went away to quiet, lonely places. Why? To pray. He had, even, even amongst his 12, he had people who were pulling him and pushing him to do and be things that he wasn't called to do. And I think that even Jesus, in, as a human, needed to be reoriented as to what God was calling him to do every single day. And that's why we need Sundays. That's why we need each other to gather with so we can be reoriented in this wet blanket world that we live in that wants to snuff you out, that wants to snuff the candle of the gospel out. I think other scriptures would bear out the fact that it's absolutely true that our love for God and love for others is intertwined and related. If you don't love your fellow man, Scripture would say you really don't love God. 1 John chapter 4, verse 20 says, If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, finish it. He is a liar. If you don't love your fellow man, you can't love God. 
You can't love God if you hate someone. Love to God and love toward our fellow man go together. They are inseparable. I think the opposite is true also. If you don't love God, you really don't love your fellow man. 1 John 5, 2 says this, this is how we know that we love the children of God. And here's what it says, by loving God and carrying out his commands. So what we should understand about the Ephesians forsaking or losing their first love is that the love in question was not narrow. It wasn't about just finding a place to love Jesus and fall in love with Jesus and just love Jesus. Because you can't love Jesus if you don't love one another. You really can't love Jesus if you don't love the world around you that he's put you in. It was much wider than that. It referred to love in all its fullness, encompassing both love for God, love for Christ, love for fellow Christians, and love for the lost. How can you love Jesus and not love the things that he loves? You can't. That would be like having a best friend that loves you but can't stand your wife. They really aren't loving you if they don't love the things you love. I think it's a danger for all of us, isn't it? I think it's a da- it's, it certainly is a danger for the Ephesians church, but it, it's a danger for every church. It's a danger for every church to lose its first love to have an initial zeal, to be so excited about what God is doing in our midst. But eventually we realize it's hard. It's hard work. People reject us. They don't want to hear the gospel. They don't want to hear the good news. And so we take a step further. We take a step further back. We we get our hands slapped. What's the phrase? Once bitten, twice shy. We get that way with the gospel. We get that way with living for others with others in mind. It's easy to work hard, to persevere, endure, to know the truth, to develop discernment, to hate sin, capable of exposing error. What did the Apostle Paul say? If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm nothing. If I can understand all mysteries but have not love, and that's love for God and love for each other in the world, we're nothing. We have lost the ability to be salt and light when that happens. We can still look good on the outside, can't we? The Ephesian church will look good on the outside. They they seem to have it all together. But there was death inside of them. They were decaying from the inside out. The danger for us all is to leave our first love. That's a setback, isn't it? The church is always in danger of losing its first love by loving the building more than Jesus. By loving history more than Jesus. By loving tradition more than Jesus. By loving our style of worship more than Jesus. By even loving our style of dress more than Jesus. It's easy to lose our focus. Over time, here's some statistics for you. Over time... Most churches plateau and eventually decline. Now, this statistic that I'm sharing with you was in 2005. It was an article in Leadership Journal. 340,000 churches are in desperate need of revitalization. That was in 2005. And the article continued that that trend has not been reversed. So if in 2005 it was 340,000 churches, I can't even imagine where it is today, that need to be revitalized, need to be replanted. It is estimated today that 3,500 to 4,000 churches in North America close their doors every year. 3,500 to 4,000 churches. And that's just the churches. In the denomination I came from, the Presbyterian Church in America, and by the way, when I say Presbyterian, don't think liberal. This was a conservative side of the Presbyterians. 500 pastors were leaving the ministry every month. Every month month. Statistics are startling. They really are. And I could share more statistics, but my point is not statistics. The natural question, especially as it pertains to the church, is who wants a stagnant or dying church? How many of you want a stagnant or dying church? I don't. I don't want to be a part of a stagnant or dying church. 
I think the obvious answer is nobody. Yet the startling truth is that most churches will not make the necessary adjustments and changes to move from stagnation and death to health and growth. Why? I think there's two main reasons. Most churches will not admit how bad they are. Most churches would rather focus on the things that Jesus focused on with the church at Ephesians, at Ephesus. It appears we're doing all the right things, but they don't want to look at their foundations. They're unwilling to look down deep. They're unwilling to look at the depth of their people. I, I, I would rather have 10 really deep Christians at Harvest Freeport than 120 really surfacey Christians at Harvest Freeport. I really would. Because God can do more with 10 really deep people than he can with 120 really surfacey people. And that is the truth. Look at the story of Gideon. Nick, thanks for reminding me this morning. Gideon thought he needed how many soldiers? 3,000. How, how many did God? Well, God took him down to 3,000, didn't he? Yeah, he took him down to 300. Yeah. He didn't, he didn't need the 3,000 uncommitted. He needed 300 really committed. See, the, the church in North America is full of uncommitted, half-hearted, really weak Christians. And it's why the church is struggling in the world today. It's why the church in North America is struggling. Do you know that the center of Christianity is no longer North America? It used to be. It's now South America, Africa, and Asia. The church is exploding in those areas. They're sending missionaries to our country. Here's the second reason that churches don't want to deal with the stagnation and death. Most churches will not make the needed changes. Two things. Most churches won't admit how bad they are and they won't make the needed changes. But here is the exciting thing. You made the needed changes. You made the choice. It's, it's, it's moving in on a year now that the leadership of Faith Community Church made a decision to be absorbed by Harvest Community Church and to become their fourth campus. You made a decision that decision hasn't been without cost and consequence, has it? Look around. There are different faces in this building. Some of you still don't like it. There are different faces in this building. You made the choice. Faith Community Church made a bold and radical decision to no longer accept stagnation and decline and put your trust in God, and you joined a congregation with a proven tract of planting thriving churches and replanting dying churches. Do you know how many members were in Petrolia when Harvest took it over? Lori, maybe you can correct me. Six? There, there were between six and 12 people coming to church on Sunday morning in Petrolia. And they were going to sell the building. And they heard that Harvest wanted to satellite. And so they contacted Harvest. And Harvest took over. There's 120 people meeting there. Harvest has a proven track record of replanting dying churches. There's a church in Indiana today that three years was not there. They started with less people than are here today. And they have about 120, 130 people that are meeting there on Sunday mornings. Some of you struggle with the vision and direction of Harvest, but they're interested in increasing the health and size of God's church everywhere, and they have a proven track record. You made that choice. And it was a bold, gutsy choice. Because the other option was that you could continue the way you were. You know, I, I had an opportunity when I first started here to have lunch with Chuck a couple times. And you know why Chuck planted this church? Because as a beat cop... As the chief of police in Freeport, he would walk the streets, he would minister to people, and he recognized there was no gospel witness in Freeport. And he said, the gospel's worth it. The gospel of Jesus Christ is worth it. And so he started Faith Community Church. Harvest Community Church is as committed to, to the work of the gospel, not only in Catanning, Indiana, PVC, but they see Freeport as a beachhead to Natrona Heights, Terenum, Leechburg, and beyond. 
You guys are at the forefront of a harvest, of a, of a, of a mission field. And you made that choice. And you stayed. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to share this. I wanted to celebrate that decision. It was a hard decision, but it was a decision for the sake of the gospel in Freeport. The second reason that I wanted to share this is because I, I think that there, is a, that there is a new beginning and that there is a plan forward. Jesus made it fairly clear to the church at Ephesus, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Why are 3,500 to 4,000 churches closing their doors every year? I think one of the reasons that we have to wrestle with is that Jesus is closing the doors. They are unwilling to be faithful to what he's called them to do in their communities. So he's removing them. He's removing their lampstands from them. Jesus himself said it. I will come to you and remove your lampstand. Every church is in danger of losing its lampstand, of losing its influence and impact in a community, of losing its ability to be salt and light if it's no longer willing to be faithful to the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. But God is a God of second chances, is he not? My purpose this morning, as I mentioned, I mentioned the first one. I want to celebrate the decision this church made a year ago. And the second reason is to mark out a path forward, a comeback path. Jesus was giving the church in Ephesus an opportunity to be a comeback church. And I think he's giving us an opportunity this morning to be a comeback church. We can't continue to spin our wheels in would have, should have, could have. We have to change the narrative. We have to change the narrative from I want to I will. We have to change the narrative from I want a physical pastor to I will jump in and, and appreciate the word of God that I hear every Sunday from that video. One of the reasons Pastor Mike is teaching our God studies is because he's recognized that if you don't know him really well, you'll have a more difficult time hearing what he has to say from the screen. But let me remind you, Harvest has a track record of seeing this model, and there are multiple models of satelliting churches of multi-sites. There are. There are four different models to multi-site. Harvest has chosen video campuses. Other churches have chosen physical pastors. But here's the other reality. Even if Pastor Mike were here to be preached here every Sunday, he couldn't effectively be your pastor. He's called to preach and teach. I am called to shepherd you here. And I am free now to shepherd you because I'm not spending 20 hours a week preparing a sermon every week. There are three other campus pastors and three other campuses that feel the same way. And I, I, I believe God called me early on in my ministry. I... I think I can preach well. I can carry my own when it comes to preaching. But I don't want to be known as a good order, a good preacher. I want to be known as a good pastor. I want to be known as a good shepherd. So try me on that. Test me. That's why I'm here. We need to change our narrative, as I said, from I want to I will. I will use my gifts, talents, and abilities. I will jump in and forge a new beginning. I will get involved in activities and events. I will get involved in vacation Bible school. I will get involved in evangelism, discipleship, praying for the congregation. Those are the four things that we were concentrating on this past few weeks, and we have more sermons left. Prayer, evangelism, discipleship, and what's the fourth one? Stewardship. Stewardship is more, more, about, more than just money. In fact, as I've heard Pastor Mike prepare the campus pastors for that sermon on stewardship, he's talking less about money than he is about the stewardship of life, the gifts and the talents and the abilities that you've been given. We need to step up and use them. I believe a comeback requires at least four elements. Elements that I think 
are included in what Jesus encouraged the church's Ephesus to do when he said to them, do the works you did at first. And here's the first one. Here's the first point on your, your map. And by the way, if, if I didn't encourage you to get your map out, you might want to get your map out now and your pens because you're going to have opportunity to fill in some spots. The first thing is renewed belief in Jesus Christ and the mission of the church. Renewed belief in Jesus, renewed belief in Jesus Christ and the mission of the church. Loving Christ and not loving the church and living faithfully to what Jesus has called the church to do. I said it earlier. It's like telling a friend that you love him, but you could care less about his wife. What is the mission of the church? What's the mission of the church? Oh, you need a pen. <laughs> you raise your hand to tell us. And, and, and just increase the health and size of God's church everywhere. And I want to reiterate that because if you, if you take a 30,000 foot view of the New Testament from the book of Acts through the epistles, the early church were doing four things. You know what the early church was doing? They were planning new churches. They were evangelizing. They were discipling and they were raising up leaders. Start in the book of Acts and read Acts through the epistles. Amidst all the difficulties and the struggles, the early, the early um, challenges to the gospel, they were doing four things. Planting churches, evangelizing, discipling, and raising up leaders. Those are the four things the church was doing, which should lend itself to what our mission is. Increase the health and size of God's church everywhere. It's, it's, that's not just a wishful statement. That, that's, not, that's not a statement that was, that was constructed by a group of elders that want to pat themselves in the back because they've got big churches. That was a statement put together because that's what God is about. That's what God is about. That's what he started when the apostles came on the scene. Creating health and size of God's church. Prayer, evangelism, discipleship, stewardship. Those are all important ingredients. Ephesians 4 makes it clear that the mission of the church is to equip the saints to live as missionaries in the communities that God has put the church. Let me say that again. To equip the saints to live as missionaries in the communities that God has put the church. That is what the Great Commission is calling the church to do. That's what it means to be missional. That it means to be on mission with God, to eat, to breathe, and live within the culture while sowing seeds of love and kindness and grace and redemption and good news. Now, we can easily get away from that if all we do is come and gather on Sunday morning and have a holy huddle and think that Sunday morning is for me. It's to equip you to be the salt and light, to be missionaries where God has put you. Think of the missionary force that God has equipped in this community. 15% of the resources that you give in your tithes and offerings go to missions. The other 85% stay in your pockets for the advancement of the kingdom where he's put you. You're a well-equipped missionary force. You really are. What are you doing about it? How are you impacting your neighbors, your coworkers, your family? How are you reaching out to the lost around you? Do you even know they're lost? Creating a renewed focus and emphasis on Jesus is vital to making a comeback. Encouraging and facilitating spiritual maturity is not optional for church leaders. We need to experience the reality of Jesus Christ in our everyday lives, then translate that belief into missional activity. What are you doing to get to know Jesus better? What are you doing on a daily basis, a weekly basis, to get to know Jesus better? What are you doing to extend the mission of the church, both inside and outside these four walls? Let me give you some suggestions. I want to invite you to our God study. Our God study, part one, Sunday evenings, 6.30. That's when we start our study. But I want to encourage you to come at 6 o'clock to enjoy some light dinner and some fellowship time. Tonight, we're talking about what the Trinity is. We're diving deep into some systematic theology and what the scripture teaches about who God is, who Jesus is, what redemption is, 
Pastor Mike is teaching through July 10th. Not Father's Day, though, because we're all going to be fathers. Go home and be good fathers and barbecue our burgers. But he's teaching every Sunday night. So come join us at the God study. You don't have to worry about signing up. Uh, men's breakfast, second Saturday of every month. Ladies, I want to encourage you to attend the Women of Strength study, the second and fourth Mondays of the month. Joan, congratulations. Uh, Joan is the new um, coordinator for the daycare up at Harvest Catanning. So we want to... So what are you going to do about your Tuesday Bible study? She's going to have to stop her Tuesday Bible study. You'll have to pick up another day. You have to pick up another day. But there's plenty... You know, Joan can't do it. You do it. Somebody else can do it. There's other people who can teach and lead. Jump in there. Don't wait. Get involved. Uh, get connected to a community group. We had four community groups going last year. I want to encourage you, get connected. It's hard to grow apart from community. Here's the second thing that I want you to encourage you to do as, in our path forward. A renewed attitude of servanthood. That's our second point on our map. A church that realizes its reason for existing, making much of God, is more than itself and its preferences, isn't it? It's a church that develops the attitude of Christ and engages in acts of service. Those churches, hear me, those churches that make plans to reach out to the people in and around their communities and then prepare people to engage in those outreach efforts will be more likely to experience renewal than those that don't. Churches that have the desire to be revitalized will want to engage in intentional outreach efforts, become active agents of community service, and pray for the Spirit of God to draw people to Jesus. So here's my question. How can we serve the Freeport area? We just had nine folks spend a week in Virginia caring for widows, fixing trailers and houses, caring for orphans. In fact, one of the houses we were working for There was a a man and a woman who had two children there that weren't their own. They were were the children of the man's former girlfriend who decided, I don't want these kids anymore. She left, and he kept them. They're orphans. We were caring for widows and orphans. Are there widows in Freeport that need their houses cared for? Are there families in Freeport that can't afford to do work on their houses? Are there families in Natrona Heights? You, you are the missionaries in the communities that God has put you in finding those folks. We, we, I, I love going to Virginia, and I hope we go again. But I would much rather make an impact here in Freeport than drive 1,200 miles over a week and do that here. We have the ability to do it. We've got great, skilled tradespeople who can do those things. But you have, to, you have to open your eyes. You have to see the need around you. How can we be present in the life of the community? I think that's, that's a more important question. How can we be present in the life of this community? Are there needy people in Freeport and surrounding communities that need the gospel through acts of service? Monthly prayer walks on the second Wednesday of the month of July. By the way, put it in your, in your, in your calendar. Second Monday, I'm sorry, what'd I say? Second Wednesdays of the month, starting in July. We're going to walk the community. Joan and I had a great time on our prayer walk on the National Day of Prayer. Joan, would you agree? We need to do it some more, don't we? We had an opportunity to pray with a resident who was sitting on his porch. I want to invite you to come and join us. Second Wednesday evening, we're going to meet down at the gazebo. Uh, a week ago, we met with, what, there were eight folks, Greg, Jeff, and Lisa, There were eight of us over in the classroom and prayed for about an hour and a half for the church, for vacation Bible school. We're going to continue to do that. What about the festivals, the Memorial Day parades, Halloween parades, Christmas parades? How can we serve the community at the monthly concerts at the gazebo? September at the river. uh, We will be responsible for the children's area for two days. Face painting, bouncy houses, games, activities. Let's come and set up water and give away free water. Let's be a presence in the community. I think every church needs to wrestle with this question. We need to wrestle with the question, 
as we turn our sights on revitalization, and here's the question, write it down. If we were to close our doors today, would anyone but our own members and attenders notice? If Harvest Freeport were to shut their doors today, we just decided as a church, we're done, close the doors, turn off the lights, unplug the electricity, would anybody in the Freeport community know we were gone? I don't think so. And that's a scary thing. Would the community be saddened because a great community transforming partner, a missionary of impact was gone? Or would it even miss a beat? Which leads me to a third element, which I think precedes and undergirds all that we do. Comeback churches, this is the third point. Comeback churches are praying churches. Historically, prayer always led outbreaks of revival and renewal. I I, I miss Rich, because Rich would meet with us on Sunday mornings before worship, and he would always pray for revival. He would break out for a he would pray for a breakout of revival every Sunday morning. But what happens in revivals is not to be seen as something miraculously different from a regular experience of the church. Did you hear me? What happens in revival shouldn't be seen as different from what should happen as the ordinary experience of the church. The difference is in degree, not kind. In an outpouring of the Spirit, spiritual influence is more widespread, convictions are deeper, and feelings more intense. But this is only a highlighting of normal Christianity. That's what the Spirit's job is to do, is to help us fall in love with Jesus. And just because he's not doing it in in a room with 500 people doesn't mean he's not doing revival. I hope he's reviving you right now. The Holy Spirit's presence and power is released through intentional prayer. Read the book of Acts. Provides several examples of believers coming together to pray for boldness. The prayers of the early church unleashed the power of God to add thousands to the church. It happened then. It's happening today. It's not happening in our country, unfortunately. It's happening in South America and Africa and Asia. But I don't, I don't, God hasn't left our country. The church is still here. Praying for boldness and for the movement of God's spirit within the community and the lives of those who are lost is part of an effective outreach strategy. And again, I want to encourage you to join the Freeport Prayer Walk the second Wednesday of each month starting in July. I'm also working on creating a prayer wall. I know some of you don't have internet. Some of you can't access the prayer wall online. We're going to develop a prayer wall that when you come in the church or leave the church, you can grab a slip of paper, write your prayer request on it, roll it up and stick it into the wall. Now, you don't have to stand in front of it and go like this. It's not like the wailing wall. Whoops. I'm glad it's just water. But it is going to be a practical way for as you leave, if you didn't put a prayer request on the wall, you can grab one of those slips of paper and take it home and pray for the person that put that on their paper. We need to be praying for each other, encouraging one another. Making prayer a more central part of our Sunday worship services. We started this morning with Greg. I'm going to invite other prayers in this congregation to come up on Sundays and pray for the needs of the community, our congregation, the world. Prayer on a regular basis for unreached people. We're going to be monthly. There's going to be bulletins. There's going to be an insert in your bulletins that highlights an unreached people group and some needs that you can do to pray for them. Okay? So be ready for that. Here's the fourth thing, and I added this later. The fourth, in comeback churches, everybody is actively involved in meaningful ministry. Everybody is actively involved in meaningful ministry. There are no bench warmers in the church. Creating an atmosphere where people are mobilized is very important in in the revitalization process. The key to this is changing the conversation. As I indicated earlier, we need to change the conversation from I want to I will. It's not about saying, I want. It's about saying, I will, to Christ and his mission in whatever capacity he calls you. I think before we can be, be a comeback church, the spiritual values must change, must change first. If we love the people Jesus loved and value those he valued, the lost, it brings fresh spiritual energy because we are missional in our approach. What's mission, what's, again, what's it mean to be missional? Let me test you. What's it mean to be missional? to think like a missionary. 
acting as the presence of Christ in the community at large, relating Christ to the people and culture. I think that leads us to change our behavior through prayer, reconciliation, repentance. This in turn leads us to structure the church, hear this, for mission, not for maintenance. Structure the church for mission, not for maintenance. I am not a chaplain. I enjoy holding your hand when you're in the hospital, but that's not my primary calling here. My calling is to be an equipper. I enjoy shepherding you and caring for your needs. But I'm not called here to be a chaplain. No pastor should be called to be a chaplain. They're called to be equippers. They're called to mobilize God's people. How many of you are ready to say, I'm in? You're still here. And so I'm assuming you're ready to say, I'm in. The church is the only institution. I I, I just want to mention in closing just a few things why I think this is important. Because the church matters. The church matters. The church is the only institution that Jesus promised to build and bless. The church is the gathering place of true worshipers. The church is the most precious assembly on earth since Christ purchased it with his own blood. The church matters, doesn't it? The church is the earthly expression of the heavenly reality. That's what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be the gospel on display for the world. We're supposed to be living the ethics of the kingdom. We are ambassadors for Christ. We are the heavenly reality on this earth. The church is the realm of spiritual fellowship. The church will ultimately triumph locally and universally. The church is the chief place for spiritual edification and for growth. The church is the launching pad for world evangelization. The church is the place where strong spiritual leaders develop and grow. I I think for these and many, many more reasons, I'm excited about the path that's in front of us. I'm excited about those whom God has put in this congregation. Some of you still may be on the bubble. It's time to decide. It's time to move on. It's time to move forward. It's time to move past this neutral onto new beginnings. I've been praying for you. I've been praying for your decision-making process. And I pray that you're encouraged by what God has had to say in and through me and through his word, more importantly. Are you ready? Are you ready to move? God has done it with lesser. 